You know, one of the, the things I love about the clip you just saw is the, the variety of the different gifts kind of put on display, right? Just to kind of see people serving with, with kids or cooking, playing football. I mean, it's just kind of, it's all over the place, right? Because the reason I love that is because a lot of times when we start talking about um, serving the people around us, when we start talking about like leaning into and, uh, and influencing our communities, when we begin to think it's so easy for us to begin to think like, man, I, I don't have anything to offer. Right? Like, I can't do that thing because we have it pictured that there's one right way to do this thing, right? Like, well, kids camp, I don't know about that. I don't know if I'm made, if I'm made for that. But the reality is, like, we have, man, all of us have been given a variety of time, talents, resources, right? And it looks different. It looks different from me to you and you to the person that you, you're sitting beside right now. And so um, you have, not only do you have what it takes, I would say that you have what is necessary to complete the body. I think that's kind of the story of the New Testament. We talk about the body, we talk about the church. All of us have unique gifts, right? And when we, when we use and when we leverage our gifts, when we leverage our abilities, the time, the talents, the resources that God has given us, when we leverage those things to, to, to influence the people around us for the good of the people around us, then, then we begin to see that, that we can be a part of a small part but we can be a part of seeing a glimpse of heaven on earth. And that really is what we've been talking about. That's kind of the question we've been asking as a church for the past several weeks now is what does it look like for us to experience heaven on earth? And you say, that sounds ridiculous, Kyle. First of all, like there's not heaven on earth, but hang with me because isn't that what Jesus taught us to pray? He did. He taught us to pray, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so if Jesus taught us to pray for life on earth as it is in heaven, then there must be some way for you and I to experience that, right? Like he wouldn't have taught us to pray that if he didn't intend for us to experience that. And yet we look at our life, you look at your life, I look at mine and we think, man, this is anything but heavenly. Fair? I tell you, I, I've been there for for really several weeks now, it's, it's kind of been a, a tough season where, man, I just, I've kind of looked at my life and thought, would this, if this is, I, I don't think this is meant to be heaven on earth. And, and hear me out because, man, my life is great, okay? Like the circumstances and situations around my life, man, it's great. I have an incredible wife that, that loves me. I have a beautiful, healthy baby daughter that I get to hold every night. I have a great job that I enjoy. I have a good home, plenty of food. Like, life's good in that way, okay? But one of the things I, I know that I look at my life, I begin to examine my life that, that, that I have missed is the presence of my heavenly Father. You say, now hold on, Kyle, like you're, you're a preacher. That doesn't happen to you, but man, it does. Like, honestly, um, look back over this past season of my life, and then I, I, I've struggled, especially in the areas of my faith. Like, my, my time in Scripture has been inconsistent at best. My time in prayer, basically been non-existent. Like physically, I've been where I should be, right? Like I've been here, I've been right here with you. Man, I've been in worship, all that kind of stuff. I'm literally at church almost every single day of my life. You know what I'm saying? So like physically, I'm where I'm supposed to be. And yet I would even come into these places and these spaces and be a part of worship, incredible worship and like nothing. 
And I don't, like, maybe I'm alone in that, but I don't think I am. I, I think that's a pretty common story for a lot of people. We went, um, Several weeks ago, I had the opportunity to go with one of our other campus pastors, Blake Houston, to uh, Kentucky, to Asbury University. I don't know if you followed uh, what was going on there, um, news, social media, but what happened several weeks ago, there was a group of college students, and by the way, if you're not paying attention to this current generation, if you're not paying attention to Gen Z, you should, you're missing out, because there's something unique and powerful happening within this generation. But what happened at this university several weeks ago was that just a regular chapel, mandatory chapel service, um, a group of college students said, you know, we're gonna hang out for a little while later. They thought, man, we, we need to be here. We're gonna stay in this place. We're gonna worship. We're gonna pray. We're gonna seek the face of God. And so they, they did. And what that simple decision sparked was a movement that quite honestly overwhelmed that college, that overwhelmed the town that it sits in, that, that began to spread to several, and it's still spreading to several colleges and universities around our nation. An incredible movement where thousands for weeks at this university, this small private university in the middle of nowhere, Kentucky, meant weeks, thousands and thousands and thousands of people flocked to this college campus to catch a glimpse of heaven on earth, to seek what we call revival. Now, I don't, the word revival for you might mean different things. For me, like there's kind of certain pictures that pop into my head when I think about revival, right? Just kind of my, my upbringing, my background. Like when I think about revival, I think about the, the week-long deal that we always did in June because that's when revival happens apparently. But we'd always plan it in June. You know, we'd go to church every single night. Um, and, and that was kind of revival for me. But when we talk about revival, the word means renewal, right? It means restoration. And for me, I desperately needed that in my faith. I needed that. Man, I had got so wrapped up and I don't, it's, it's a drift, right? Like the drift happens so, so easily, but I had got so wrapped up in, honestly, like enjoying the gifts that I had totally missed the giver. And I needed that, I needed that renewal and I needed that, that revival and that restoration of my faith. And I mean, one of the things that, that God has opened my eyes to in, in this season in particular, because it's been, a, it's been a story, it's been a struggle of mine, is just the great need of that. Man, I think we are a people and I do think God is, is breaking out revival, renewal, restoration in some incredible ways, but man, we are a people that desperately need it. We are a people that desperately need renewal and revival and restoration. Maybe for you, like me, it's in your faith. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's in some relationships around you. Maybe it's in your, your joy, your purpose, just through the, the trudging of life. I mean, you've lost sight of that. And there is a, a craving for something more. I think God has that something more for us. And so here's what I want to do. For the, the next little while, man, I just I want to talk to the hearts that, that are craving renewal, that, that are craving restoration and revival, whatever avenue that might look like for you. And if you don't have one of those, an avenue of revival, not a heart. If you if you're looking at your story and you think, man, I don't I don't know that I need revival or restoration anywhere, then man, praise God for that. Be in prayer for the rest of us that do, because we need it. 
And so I want to walk through a, a text, James chapter four. I want to walk through just the first 10 verses of this chapter. No, no rhymes, no alliteration, nothing fancy. I just meant I, I, I want us to talk about what James has to say to our heart, what the, what the scripture says to our heart that is longing for renewal, that is longing for restoration and revival, okay? So James chapter four. Starting in verse one, says this. James says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Where is the conflict in your life? That's what James is kind of pressing into. That's what James is trying to get us to ask. Where, where is the conflict? Where is the tension in your life? Because you need to pay attention to that. You need to pay attention to the tension that is coming up in your life because that will reveal something within you. That external conflict, that external tension is showing, it is highlighting an internal war. Where's that conflict? Where's that tension? You find yourself going home every single day after work just ready to bite your spouse's head off. Like you just, man, you're incredibly short with them and you don't really know why, but that's on your nerves, right? Or maybe it's your kids. Maybe your kids are just on your nerves and just, it doesn't take anything and you just pop off on them. Maybe you're mad at yourself. You look in the mirror and man, you're just, you're, you're disgusted. You're grossed out by what you see, not physically, maybe physically, mentally. You're driving to work every single day, 30 minutes, you're just cussing your boss out in your head the whole time. Like, where is that conflict to have? Where's that tension in your life? James says that tension, that conflict, that, that external conflict reveals an internal war, that your passions are at war within you. The next verse, he's going to say desires. He talks about passions and desires together. And what he's telling us, we're going to see this as we roll through this chapter, or these couple of verses, rather, that, that it is our disordered, that's what we're going to call it, our disordered desires cause that conflict. And when I say disordered desires, I mean those desires, I mean those passions that are out of sync with God's design. Jeff talked about a couple of weeks ago, God's design, right? That there is a good design that God has for life. And in that, in that design, that's where we experience a heavenly walk in life, a heavenly experience of life within God's design. But our desires, when those things get disordered, when those things get out of sync with God's design, it causes, we begin to see that play out in external conflict, in that external tension. So pay attention to it. Pay attention to those places. Verse two, he says, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet, that means you, you want, you covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Now, let me, let me just kind of clarify this sentence right here. You do not have because you do not ask. He is not saying, and, and I, I want to clarify this because I think I've been guilty. Actually, I know I've been guilty of, of kind of teaching this, I think, the wrong way. You do not have because you do not ask. James is not saying, hey, if you want more, you should just ask more. Now, I do think, like Jesus teaches us that, that God is, is a heavenly father that longs to give good gifts to his children. I believe that to be very true. But James is not saying here, hey, you just need to ask for more things, then you'll get more things. What James is saying here is you're not asking, no, you're taking. You do not have because you're trying to take too much. You're trying to walk through doors. You're trying to kick down doors that God doesn't intend for you to walk through. Let me give you an example. One of the reasons you don't have joy and purpose in your life is because you're trying to take it. You're trying to take it for yourself. 
You can't, you can't find that joy. You can't latch on to that purpose because you keep thinking, man, you know what? In this passion, in this addiction, I'm going to find it. No, you won't. In this pursuit, in this relationship, I'm going to find it. And no, you don't. But God says, hey, instead of taking, why not ask? Because in my order, in my design, I've got it for you. Quit trying to take it and ask for it. You do not have because you do not ask. We, we, started, um, we started this conversation about desire with, with our students last, last week. Yeah, last Sunday night at Movement, we started this conversation about desire with our students. And, and which, by the way, parents, let me say this. If, if you are not taking advantage of the resources, if you're not taking advantage of, man, just all of the things that our teams are putting out for you and for your children, you're missing out. Because listen, here's the deal. Our teams are put, man, we want to partner with you, parents. We want to partner with you as you lead your family, as you lead your children in faith. And I know that's a difficult thing. I know it's difficult to wrap your head around the language to lead your children in that kind of stuff, the things to ask, the things to talk about and how to pray. So we want to help you in that, right? We want to, man, we give you videos and, and devotions and prayers and questions and all of those things to help men from, from birth all the way through college because... Look, we, we want to create the spaces and the places for your children to, to interact with their faith and, and to interact with other uh, children and students who are interacting with their faith because, yes, that's powerful. But listen, man, I have been a part of some incredible programming for children, incredible programming for students. But there is no programming that will ever match the power of your dinner table. Can't do it. And so we want those conversations, not just to live in a church building one or two hours a week, man. We want those conversations to live in your living room, at your table, in your household, because that's where the power is. That's all side notes. Let me get back. Um, we started that conversation with our students last week about desire because here's the deal. Regardless of our age, our desires, any unguarded desires in our life, those things turn deadly. James, James calls us murderers. He says, you, do, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. He's not saying that we, we physically kill people, right? But it causes death. Those desires, man, when they're left unguarded, they cause death, death to your faith, death to joy, death to your marriage. You've experienced some of that. You know people who have experienced some of that, that unguarded desire that you've chased how it's killed that relationship, how it's killed that purpose and that joy because it, let, it went unguarded. Verse three, he says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, James, look man, James has called us murderers, now he's calling us adulterers. You adulterous people. Nine times, nine times before this verse, he is called, he is referred to, James is referred to his audience as brothers. It's a gender neutral term, it can mean brothers or sisters, okay? So brothers or sisters. So what's clear is that James is writing to believers. He's writing to people who are pursuing Jesus. Not perfect people because he's called them murderers and adulterers, so they're clearly not perfect, but he's writing to people who are pursuing Jesus, who are following after Jesus, who are trying to understand what this looks like to walk in the way of Jesus. And here, all of a sudden he shifts, not the audience, but he shifts the language, and he says, you adulterous people. 
The word means promise breaker. You have broken your promise is what he says. It's like what God says to um, the church of Ephesus in Revelation, I think it's Revelation chapter two, where he says, this I have against you, that you have abandoned your first love. Not that you lost it. It's not that you misplaced it. It's not that it ran away from you, but you left it. You abandoned it. You walked away. Why? Because our desires distract us from God's design. When we begin to pursue those disordered desires, when we begin to pursue those things over our heavenly father, when we begin to begin to pursue the created thing over the creator, my life, when we begin to pursue the gifts over the giver, then we lose sight of our first love. We, we, we break our promise, our, our marriage vow as the bride of Christ. Now, here's the good news because I, I realize all of that, none of that sounds good, but here's the good news. Verse five, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he, that God yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he, God, but God gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So here's the good news. Okay, we've said this, I don't know how many times in this place, you simply cannot out God's grace. He's got more of it. You don't know my story. No, but I know he's got more grace. You don't know my choices. No, I don't, but I know he's got more grace. Man, you don't know the things I've done, the lies I've told, the relationships I've broken. You don't know. I don't. You're right. But I know he has more grace. That's the whole point of Scripture, that God has more grace for you, more grace for me, that it is an, an abundant fountain that never runs dry, that regardless of our story, regardless of our brokenness, regardless of our choices, there is God's grace available unmerited, undeserved favor. That's what grace means. God's favor is available to us. And so what do we do then with these desires? Right, we have these desires, we all do, these, these disordered desires, these things that are kind of outside of God's design that kind of pull us, that distract us, that, that bring about death and destruction in our life if we don't put the guards around them. Well, what do we do with them? What, the next couple of verses, James kind of gets into a little bit more of a practical space. Okay, so, so let me read through the, the next couple of verses, starting verse seven. And excuse me, James is gonna give us um, about four kind of practical things that you and I can do to, to put some guards, okay, around these desires so that we can find that renewal, that revival, that restoration that our hearts long for. Okay, verse seven. He says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Two things, one, submit to God. That's the first thing. Now, look, I understand that, that we, that culturally we've kind of made a bad word out of submit, right? Because to submit, if I'm gonna submit to you, if I'm gonna submit to God, then I don't have choice of my own anymore. And, and somehow we've made my own choice, we've elevated it to the pinnacle that there's no higher thing than to be able to make my own choice. But let me ask you, how's that been working out? Because I, I hear a lot of stories, I've made a lot of choices. And when we get into this place and we think, man, you know what, I've got this figured out. I know what's best. 
I'm going to tell you, Kyle, I'm a fool. (laughs) I make some dumb choices. It's in those moments, in those places, I think, oh, I got this. Man, I I know what's best for me, that I end up doing the dumbest thing possible, right? Because we don't know. We don't know what tomorrow holds. We certainly don't know what next year holds. How am I going to know what's best? And we get into this place where we think my choice is supreme and I'm going to make my own choices and we end up in a ditch, wrecked. And instead, what God says is, look, I've got a better, it's what Jeff said, I've got a better design. I've got a better way. And so listen, you and I, look, we don't have to be perfect. We'll see this in just a minute. We don't have to be perfect in order to acknowledge that God has a better way. That's what submitting looks like. I say it all the time, not my way, God, but yours. That's what submitting looks like. I can't do this, but God, I trust you. I don't know what this looks like, but God, I know you and I trust you. And we get into that place, that's submitting, right? Where we say, look, okay, you're right. I don't know it all, but I know God has a better design. I want to find his way forward. Submit. And then James says to resist the enemy, resist the devil. This word resist, I love this because it's, 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 it's wartime language is what it is. It means to fight. It literally means to turn, to stop running and instead turn and fight, engage in the battle. Because how often do we feel like, man, we just have to white knuckle our way through the struggle. Through the struggle, through the desire, through the temptation, we feel like I've just got to, man, if I can bear down, if I can stay put, this will pass. And and what what scripture, what James is telling us is, look, you don't have to just close your eyes and grit your teeth and one day it's all going to be okay. No, he says, turn and fight, engage in the battle because it's worth it. It's worth the fight. Your faith is worth the fight. Your marriage, your children, they're worth the fight. And so quit being passive with your struggles, with those desires, and turn and fight, engage them. What does that look like? Let me give you two things, just real simple, real quick, okay? You can circle that word resist and somewhere out in the margin, you write these two words, guardrails and accountability. Guardrails and accountability. You wanna begin to resist, you wanna fight back against the enemy that is constantly pulling, distracting, bringing death and destruction in your life. Put some guardrails in place. Look, if, if, if pornography, if lust is the, the desire that is, that is pulling you into some dangerous places, then quit being alone with your laptop or your, your phone by yourself. Put some guardrails in place. If it's addiction, if it's alcohol, then you probably need some new friends that are, that are not going to encourage you to do that every single weekend, right? Put some guardrails in place. And then have some accountability. Invite someone else into the conversation. Let someone else in on the struggle. Let someone else know the struggle, the battle that you're in, the war that you're fighting. Have some accountability in place. And if you don't know how to do either one of those things, if you've got nobody to help you in either one of those lanes, then you need to be at house church on Wednesday night. Because you'll find people there that can help you with your guardrails, that can help you with accountability, that can help you resist and fight back because it's worth it. Look at the next verse, verse eight. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Here's the third thing James tells us, to draw near to God. What the enemy will do with your sin and your struggle 
is he'll turn it into shame. And shame will separate you. It'll separate you from your heavenly father, from your God, from your creator. So what happened in the garden, right? It's what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden. What happened? They sinned. The enemy introduced sin. It led to shame. And what they do? They hid from God. Look, you can hide your struggles from every person around you, but you can't hide them from God. They did, they hid from God. And what God do? He went and found them. He found them in the garden. Why are you hiding? And then, then he covered their sin and their shame. The enemy will separate you from your father by turning your struggle into shame. Listen to me, God is not grossed out by your struggles. He's not ashamed of your shame. You remember the parable of the prodigal son? Like we've talked about it several times. The son gets his father's inheritance and he goes into a foreign land and he wastes it all. He does all the awful things you can imagine. And then one day he comes to himself. He goes back to his father and his father, it tells us that his father's looking for him and he goes running after him because he sees him a long way off. He goes running after his son and he embraces him and he hugs him and he kisses him and he restores him long before his son ever had a shower and clean, clean the filth off of him. You don't have to hide your shame from God. Don't let the enemy separate you from God. It says, draw near and he will draw near to you. It's one of the beautiful principles of scripture is that we pursue the presence of God. His presence pursues us, right? Just like the father went running after his son, God meets you. You don't have to ascend the mountain. You don't have to perfect everything. And once you climb there, you'll find God. No, God comes and he meets you. As you pursue his presence, he pursues you. And then what's the last thing James says? Cleanse your hands, you sinners. This is, this is the last 10% that I think so many of us struggle with finding, being willing to step into in order to find that, that revival, that restoration, that, that redemption, that renewal, that man we so long for. Look, if we're gonna find it, if we're gonna experience it, then listen, you and I, we, we gotta get serious about our sin. We gotta get serious with it. We gotta acknowledge it. We gotta, we gotta quit sweeping it under the rug. Look at verse nine. He says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. That sounds awful, right? But he, James is not saying you should be miserable in your sin. What James is saying is you need to be serious about it. The Puritans, and look, the Puritans did not get everything right. But one of the things the Puritans would pray for is they would pray for tears. They would pray that God would break their heart for the things that break his. Just, are we willing to be in that same place? Because levity right? Levity is kind of like the, the drug of choice for us now, culturally, right? Man, we don't want to sit in the weight of, of heartbreak, of weeping, of mourning. And yet, man, to understand that our sin breaks the heart of God. And then, right, not just to sit, not just to wait there, but understand that our sin breaks the heart of God. And even still, he has more grace. That, 
That is the place that you and I, man, that's where we begin to find a renewal like none other, a restoration like none other. Verse 10, he says to, to humble yourselves before the Lord, right? To be wretched, to mourn, to weep, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will and God will exalt you. There's the revival. That's the restoration. That's the renewal that we're looking for. It doesn't come because we had days worth of worship experience. It doesn't come because we, we had hours worth of songs. It doesn't come because the preacher yelled really loud. It comes because you and I get serious with our sins because we repent. And without that repentance, we don't find revival. God's restoring presence, here's, here's how I kind of sum that verse up. God's restoring presence meets us in a place of repentance. If you're looking for that, that restoration, that revival, it happens in repentance. If you're praying for renewal in your life, in your faith, it won't happen without repentance. If you're, if you're praying for, if you're looking for redemption and restoration in your marriage and relationships that have been broken, it's not gonna happen without repentance. If you are praying for revival to break out on your college campus, at work, in your community, it's not gonna happen until you and I get serious with our sin and we understand it in light of God's amazing grace. There's a quote, and we'll, we'll end here. It's a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He, he said this, he said, never has there been a revival, a restoration, a renewal, but that some of the people, and my prayer is that it's you and I today, that some of the people, especially at the beginning, have had such visions of the holiness of God, the goodness, the bigness of God, and the sinfulness of sin, the brokenness, the ugliness of sin, that they have scarcely known what to do with themselves. This church this is where renewal and revival happens when you and I are willing to acknowledge our brokenness and see God's goodness despite of it. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna step into a, a time of response across all of our campuses. And my hope and my prayer is more than anything else, you and I in this space, in two songs, we can be serious with our sin. Not shame, don't let it drive you to a place of shame, but let it drive us to our Savior. So across all of our campuses, we, we have people who, man, they wanna pray for you. We have prayer teams available that wanna pray for you. In this time, if, um, as, we, as we sing, as we worship, as, as we respond, if you just need someone to put a hand on your shoulder, look, you don't have to divulge your deep, dark secrets. If you just need to say, I need somebody to pray for forgiveness with me. We wanna do that. And if you just need to get on your knees at the altar and pray and do that, if you need to, to go to the cross and you need to lay something down there, then do that. Man, my, my hope, my prayer more than anything else is that God will break our hearts of the things that break His and He will restore us in His grace. Let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll respond. Lord, we come before you now, God, I, I thank you. God, I thank you for your goodness, for your grace. God, I pray for, for tears. I pray that you will break our hearts of what breaks yours. And God, I pray that in that we will be restored, we will be revived, we will be redeemed in you. 
I pray that you'll bring healing, that you'll bring salvation to this place, that you'll bring miracles to this place. And God, that you'll be glorified in it all. We love you. We give you all the praise. All things we ask in your name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Venture Church Podcast. To find a campus near you, check out VentureChurch.org.